Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams Podcast. Joining me today, I have a very special guest, the first anonymous guest that I've had on the show. I'm going to be interviewing a chicken. The chicken goes by the name of Doomberg. Uh, he has become something of a meteoric star on Twitter in recent months and through his writing on Substack, which is exceptional. He covers an awful lot of uh, topics, and I just felt this was a great opportunity to get on someone uh, to talk about not just the subjects uh, that they're covering uh, in this wacky, wacky world of ours, but also how they founded their business, the thought process behind it, the thought process of going down the particular road they've taken, because I suspect there are people out there who will find this very interesting, not just from the financial perspective, but for people who are looking at the world of social media, looking at the world of content, and feel like they have a podcast in them or they have a written product in them and don't really know what to do about that. So uh, without further ado, here is my conversation with Doomberg. Well, Doomberg, they, uh, they say if you live long enough, you will get to see everything. This is a bucket list for me. I've always wanted to interview a chicken. <laughs> Grant, Grant Williams, uh, really amazing to be on your show. Thanks for having me and. uh Hopefully, um, I come through on on what you thought it would be. Well, look, it's a great pleasure to talk to you because you've been kind of come out of nowhere in the Twitter sphere and just putting out some consistently really, really fantastic, thought provoking stuff. And so, you know, I, I I wanted to talk to you about that, but I also am intrigued with the the other thing that you're putting out regularly, which is this report on on what you call the work of your life, which I found really interesting. It resonated with me strongly for many personal reasons. But I thought it was a really interesting experiment for you to put out there in public. So, I mean, to the best that you can, let's go back to when you were hatched and figure out kind of the, the career path you've taken. Sure. Yeah. So I, I'm not actually a chicken in real life, although uh, I do play one on Twitter. I'm a scientist and a business person by training. I spent decades doing the business of science in industry and that slowly evolved over time to become more about business and less about science, as things do. Uh, and then eventually, I decided to leave the world of corporate business and start uh, a consulting firm with uh, with a small team. So I'm, I'm currently a partner in a bespoke consulting firm that specializes in coming up with alternative ways to view complex problems for our clients. And so uh, we sort of have two approaches to our business. One is we tackle any problem that has some complexity to it, whether or not we have any pre-existing knowledge in the space. Uh, and then two, we actively network and give to a network of experts in a variety of fields and then are able to sort of crowdsource from that network to solve tough problems for our clients. And these problems you know, run the full range of environmental problems to technical problems, to business problems, to M&A strategy, uh, you name it. Our, our One of our mottos in the office is don't come to us unless you want to hear yes. And through the development of that business, we have found that in order to understand complexity, one of the best ways to climb the ladder quickly is to try to teach it to somebody else. 
And so if you can explain, you can understand. And so before we would present to a client our findings, we would be teaching each other sort of in dry runs to try to understand the essence of a, of a new problem, which is really quite fun. And it's a fantastic way to live. And it's a, it's a great way to grow a business. And so our strategy is, is to be able to teach and then to become friends with the experts that we would need to bring in and, and really solve the problem via our network. And so those two things sort of combined to lay the foundation for what Doomberg ultimately is, which is an outlet for my passion that my team encouraged me to do. Uh, and I count you as sort of informally part of that team because part of your encouragement to, to give this a go was certainly a big input uh, for us. Uh, but we decided that, you know, this ability to explain uh, combined with this emerging trend of content creators putting themselves out there in the market um, was sort of the, the foundation for how Doomberg was born. Uh, we're almost 50 articles deep into this uh, little experiment. It's been a total blast. The reaction to it has far exceeded my expectations. Uh, and in a way, it's a great showcase piece for our clients for how we think and how we write and the types of brands we can develop. And so it's really, really been fantastic. And to think that I'd be on the Grant Williams podcast so soon after starting Doomberg has, uh, is proof of how much it has exceeded our expectations. Well, I'm not sure about that, but I have to say, you know, that whole idea of if you can explain, you can help people understand, it, that was really what I started doing, you know, when I started writing things to make you go home. It was like, if I can explain this to people, then it, it means I understand it. And that was really a similar start for me in terms of, okay, do I understand this? And how do I figure out if I do understand it? And that is trying to explain to other people, as you say. So that, that really resonates with me. Just talk me through the decision to go down the anonymous route, because I, I presume it's something to do with client privacy and stuff, but was there any other contributing factors to that? Yeah, it's not so much about client privacy. I, I think it actually sort of adds to the brand. When we did a, an analysis of the content creator space, there's sort of two routes to go. Uh, one is you become Grant Williams and your face is the brand. There's a completely separate route, which is the anonymous route, uh, which does have the advantage of keeping some privacy and does allow you a bit of uh, a few degrees of freedom to speculate on, a, on a, a wider array of topics without too much concern for any potential backlash blowing into your personal life. Although the topics we talk about on Doomberg aren't, we're meant to be provocative without being polarizing. And, and we know sort of the hot button issues that could get somebody in trouble if they're, you know, what you say is misinterpreted. And we try to avoid those. Um, it's just not worth the hassle. But the, yeah, right. the, the true the, the, the deciding factor to stay anonymous is actually about the brand. Um, the chicken as a brand is was really fun. One of my partners is brilliant at developing brands and this was their creation. And, and when people see the chicken, they have a certain reaction. And, and we've done a lot of work in branding for clients and we have a couple of expressions around branding, one of which is brand is what they say it is, not what you say it is. And then brand is about consistency. And so I actually debated about whether or not to come on the podcast because it sort of pierces some of that, is this really a chicken brand element? But at the same time, uh, we're going to keep the writing pretty pure. And um, and we decided since it's the Grant Williams podcast, I mean, you, you don't say no to an invite to a show like yours. <laughs> well, look, I, I have to say that, uh, and I actually don't want to break this to you, but I, I don't think anybody really thought you were a chicken. Um, so the hours you may have spent debating that May have been a futile exercise. I think we all realize that I've seen chickens type and it's not pretty. <laughs> well, I will say that uh, the the chicken brand, and one of the things that we do with with the Substack articles is we 
we always infuse a bit of photoshopping of the chicken into the, the weaving right. it into the story. And, and uh, when I watch uh, friends and family read the latest Doomberg piece, they always seem to chuckle at those photoshops, which right. is which is the brand intent. You know, it, it's meant to be funny without being silly, provocative, without being uh, polarizing and to teach without being too too arrogant about it as though you you know all the answers because we, we certainly don't uh we, we sometimes write about things we've just learned about um we aren't so arrogant to think that we know the answers uh if if the answers were known or knowable that it'd be far less interesting uh to navigate the world uh, but we do have some experience in some areas and we do see what i think are pretty boneheaded policies uh, especially in the energy space being propagated globally right now and and the inevitable disasters that will befall us um, as they play out in real time are, are sort of fascinating to watch. Uh, and so we aren't afraid to put out a bold opinion. Um, but at the same time, you know, we do recognize that uh, the chicken brand is, you know, and Doomberg, the name, which is a great name, again, conceived by that same partner that conceived the chicken icon. Uh, it just sort of captures much of the zeitgeist of the current content creator framework. Uh, it's sort of a, a combination of zero hedge, but with a bit more humor and, um, and, and a bit more fun. Well, the uh, we'll, we'll get to some of those polarizing hot button topics in a bit because there's there's a lot of those that you've tackled. That I'm I'm really keen to talk to you about. But before we do that, let, let's talk about the work of your life, the idea of publishing that and bringing people along on that journey. Because I, I thought that was a fantastic idea. It's a brave idea for sure, particularly as you did it so early in your run before you you really had a sense of what this was going to become. So so talk about the motivations behind that and what you hope to achieve with it. Absolutely. The work of my life, just to bring people up to speed who, who may not have read Doomberg yet, is a monthly letter that authentically lays bare the progress of Doomberg as an entity. So our follower count, our email subscriber count, how many people are reading us. But also it shares the very personal story at the heart of Doomberg, which is, as my team that encouraged me to do this kept saying, no, this is your passion. In my career as a scientist, I found my success, I was, I was a decent scientist, but the differentiating attributes of my career were my ability to explain really complex scientific phenomenon to investors and stakeholders in a way that made them understand it. And because it was at the interface between business and technology, I had to understand the business side of it before I could explain why the technology was relevant and should cause them to write a check. Now, because explaining, understanding, distilling, visualizing, digging into the data directly, pulling out the essence of a phenomenon is my deep personal passion. One of our philosophies is if, if you're authentically passionate about something, then it becomes infinitely easier to do. Uh, and you followed this and I've watched your journey very carefully. I've been a subscriber for a long time. You're very passionate about being with brilliant people in the finance space, understanding their strategies, their stories, their tactics, their journeys, and then producing gorgeous product that other people are willing to pay to consume. And you couldn't do that if it felt like work. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the work of my life is an honest expression of the authenticness with which we are approaching this Doomberg project. I, this is the work of my life. This is what I love to do. We still have, of course, a business to run, and not all work can feel like fun, but I can assure you that no Doomberg work ever feels like work. And oftentimes when I'm doing the things that I still have to do in the day-to-day -day business, 
I have a yearning to do the Doomberg work, which we would classify as a get to do. And one of the philosophies around the office is what is our have to get to ratio? And how can we drive that as close to zero as possible? Um, there's no world where you don't have to fill out your taxes or you don't have to you know, do some chores. But to the extent that you can proactively and consciously tilt the have to get to ratio as much to the get to as possible, it sort of snowballs and people love that. And so the, the second aspect of the work of my life, when we studied the landscape of content creators, you included and, and other big names out there that happen to be our friends, we have found that a lot of people focus on half of the equation in creating a content business, which is the size of the audience. But in reality, there's two parts to that equation, which is the size of your audience and the engagement of your audience. And the engagement of your audience, i.e. who will convert over the paywall with you if you do decide to make a business out of it, is just as important, if not more so, than the size of your audience. And, and it's very simple math. If you could get 4% to convert over a paywall versus 3%, that's not 1% better, that's 33% better. Yeah. And so to proactively invest in the engagement of the audience, a quick study of why audiences become engaged to particular content creators very quickly reveals that the number one driving factor is how authentic the creators are. The reason why your experiment has been such a great success of moving behind the paywall with your podcast and the newsletter and now the launch of your gold series and congratulations on that. First one certainly was spectacular and Thank you. I, anticipate, I anticipate the others will be. You're authentically Grant Williams and that's a key element of your brand. Uh, there's nobody watching what you do that doubts whether this isn't a joyous event for you, that you don't pinch yourself every day that you wake up knowing that your job is to go talk to the smartest people on earth about topics that are interesting to you. And so the work of my life is an investment in the authenticity of the Doomberg brand and what we're trying to do. And, and I, you couldn't fake it. And so it's really a proactive investment in building intimacy with the audience. We have a very large audience of readers now, much more than we thought we would get. And we'll see if and when we do decide to, to move behind a paywall and try to create sort of a, a business out of Doomberg, uh, we'll see whether those investments uh, have paid off. But at the same time, they're just also like very fun to write. And so there's no reason to not share them with the audience because they, they are an accurate reflection of the authentic me. You know, that, that's really interesting, right? Because I wonder if it's easier to connect with an audience when you take personality out of it in terms of like a visible well-defined person because like, everyone's got their haters right it just it's just the way it is but with that anonymity it really ends up with it's just it's the writing that does all the talking for you so people connect with you through the way you turn a phrase they don't care that you're short or you're bald or you know none of that sort of stuff comes into it is that a plus do you think or a minus that people can't connect with the person behind the chicken well it's unique and yeah. so there's that uh, one of the things we wanted to do was stand out uh, as much as possible uh, because in the content creator space, as you know, it's become very crowded. Uh, the barrier to entry is zero. Um, and so there's you know, individual personalities aplenty, but there are far fewer well-done anonymous accounts. Uh, and so one of the things that we tried to do is to make it a very well-done anonymous account in the sense that um, you know you 
it's it stands out. It's unique. You know, the first you can't be remembered if you if you don't stand out. Um, and so the the benefits of anonymity also, as you allude to, include the fact that you know you can focus the things that people will talk to you about towards the things that you're writing about because there's nothing else in my personal right. life who I donated to, how I voted, uh, whether I'm you know pro vaccine or anti vaccine or whether there's a, a high school picture of me that I regret floating around on the internet, um, none of those things matter. And then on top of all of that, this is uh, something that that Tony Deaton said in your fantastic podcast with him. Um, the 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 transition from virtue to virtual uh, is real, yeah. and um, I'm utterly fascinated by cryptocurrencies, NFTs, the virtual world. Um, Based on my writing, people would assume I'm anti-crypto. I'm not anti-crypto. I'm just puzzled by the arrogance in the field that they think they can just break laws with impunity. But there is a real undeniable trend towards the virtual. And in the virtual world, you can be whoever you want to be, even a chicken. Right. Yeah, it's it's, it's a good point. I mean, who would have thought that a chicken would be the number one choice? But as you've gone through this process and you've started writing, you know, I know what it's like putting that first piece out there. Talk about the reaction you've had, um, and and which pieces, if any, have kind of drawn either surprising amounts of engagement or the most engagement. And then let's dig into some of those topics. Because look, so far I keep saying to people, you are batting a thousand. Every piece you've put out has been a wildly different to the last. And B, a really interesting, thought-provoking, and and amusing read. So, so how has that putting the content out there? How's that journey gone? It's it's been very interesting. Um, I'm on Substack, which is a great platform, uh, and especially great if if you are wanting to run an experiment without preloading a bunch of expenses of building your own website and back office payment system and all the work and complexities that come with that. Um, and so the, the barrier to entry is very small. The key element for us is we had no social media uh, to begin with. So we started from scratch, which people say is a bad idea. But what we did have was a lot of influential friends um, who could help us get started and you among them. But I, I should name, you know, Kevin Muir was a, a big bump for us early on. Uh, QTR, Chris Irons has been very helpful. Um, Friends like Tony Greer, Dimitri Kafinas, uh, you name it, uh, they've been very helpful. And so you don't need your own social media property to get started, but having friends who do and can retweet your stuff has been good. The right. pieces that that do well um, surprise me sometimes. So I, one of the rules and the, the next work of my life is going to be about how um, writing for yourself is first and foremost, and you can't really allow the analytics in the crowd to dictate what you should write. But uh, it is a bit of a gamification to see your email subscribers grow and your Twitter followers grow. Uh, the pieces that do really well are obviously crypto. Uh, and crypto is an incredibly interesting, fascinating, perfect topic for the day. Uh, the inflation pieces don't do very well, actually, uh, which is a bit of a surprise to me. I think uh, two pieces in particular that I'm very proud of that have done very well are um, America's energy policy is bonkers. Yeah. Uh, and the most recent one on the situation in the UK, um, the windmill that almost spoiled supper. Uh, those are sort of classic examples of our thinking process, how, you know, you connect dots and explain things in a way that makes sense to people that might not be trained scientists or, or you know, deeply knowledgeable about how certain markets work. Uh, but they sort of represent our thinking style. 
Um, the other thing which we stole from you really uh, in discussions with you before we launched this is the criticality of a great title. Mm -hmm. And most people don't give too much thought to the title of their piece. But in reality, as you said to me privately, well, I don't start writing my newsletter until I have the title. And when I get the title, the newsletter writes itself. Right. Um, and so if you go back to America's energy policy is bonkers, there's one word in that title that makes it clickbaity, which is bonkers. Mm -hmm. It's the perfect word. It captures the essence of the insanity of it all. And it, it gives you, it tells you exactly where we're coming from when we start that piece. Um, and frankly, it's also true. America's energy policy is bonkers. And, you know, to it, once I had that title, the piece wrote itself um, in a couple hours. And so crypto does really well, although I don't want to just write about crypto. That sort of seems, even though it's a, I'm deeply and personally interested in crypto, it just seems like too easy of a growth hack to grow your audience by being provocative about crypto. I, I would never yeah. write something I didn't believe. Um, but I don't want to be branded as a crypto channel and or anti-crypto because it's neither. So, so, uh, so look, let's let's dig into something. Let's let's dig into the uh, things you've referenced it a couple of times. Now. Let's dig into the energy policy is bonkers title. Let's let's talk about what you wrote, where the where the kind of genesis of that came from, and then the reaction you got to it. Sure. So the the first piece on energy that I'm very proud of that predated America's energy policy is bonkers is a piece titled um, "Why Are Cows Sacred." Uh, which is an interesting little piece. And, the, and the some of your best Photoshop work as well, <laughs> as I remember. Indeed. Um, so why are cows sacred is a question that few people think about, but in reality, cows are sacred because they're the first rechargeable solar-powered batteries. Um, cows have this magnificent property of being able to eat stuff that humans can't and convert that into things that humans can consume. And so um, for millennia, Cows have been sacred because ultimately energy is life. You know, the, the human endeavor is a constant, unrelenting struggle against entropy. And just abandon a house for a year and you'll see what the what you know how just how spontaneous disorder is. You need to continuously resupply your body and your environment with excess energy in order to impose order on your local environment. And this is a, a, a basic concept of physics. It's the reason why time has an arrow. And few people understand just how important the direct connection between our energy policy is and who gets to live and who gets to die. And for all of the arguments against fossil fuels, and I understand them, and for all of the worry about long-term damage that we're doing to the planet, and I do understand those, there's a cost-benefit analysis to every decision that we make. And currently, we have decided on a worst-of-all-worlds situation, which is we are governed by platitude, our politicians are untrained and the voters largely like platitudes. Uh, platitudes are easy. They sound great. They make for great commercials, but the actual in the trenches decision-making around energy policy is incredibly complex, very serious. And the consequences of getting it wrong can be catastrophic, which is what we're seeing in the UK right now, which I've warned our clients is nothing but a preview for what's going to happen here. So to break it down to some particulars, if we have decided that the constraint we're going to optimize around is a return on carbon emitted, that's fine, all for it, then you have to have a, a, a sensible nuclear energy policy. Right. There, is no, there is no path to a decarbonized economy without nuclear power that doesn't involve mass starvation. It's just undeniable. The physics of it are plain and simple to see. And so 
the greatest damage to the planet, I believe, were the Three Mile Island incident in Fukushima, because no events are responsible for more carbon being emitted than those two. It's not about the nuclear waste that has leaked or the localized damage that that has done. It's the damage to the sanity of our policies that have arisen from those two industrial accidents. The current state of new nuclear power is infinitely more safe than what transpired there. And you know, because of those two nuclear accidents, we see coal plants replacing nuclear plants all over the world. And China in particular is just building out a massive amount of coal-based power, which is really, if you truly believe in global warming and forget global warming, I mean, the burning of coal emits all kinds of nastiness to the environment that I think does true damage. And I'm, I'm actually quite quite an environmentalist in my private life uh, and in my work. Uh, we've worked on many renewable type projects and are, are firm believers in them, but the policy has to be sane. And so you can't be pro-renewable and anti-nuclear and consider yourself intelligent on the issue. You can't block all new fossil fuel development in your backyard, which only has the effect of delegating your energy future to people who don't like you. Uh, it's really just stunningly frustrating to watch play out uh, in real time. But also completely understandable, right? Because we we live in that world now where it's all about perception. It's all about the narrative. And unfortunately, it's all about winning votes. And so having a popular energy policy doesn't really fit with having a sensible energy policy. Yes, that's true. Except very quickly, as we're about to find out in the UK, and, and we'll soon find out here, the crisis erupts, people get angry, and then they overcorrect to the other side. We're going to see reversals of policy in the UK and a boom in the exploration of natural gas and fossil fuel plant construction eventually, because it's just unacceptable that grocery stores don't have food and people can heat their homes. And people don't realize, the other thing we, we talked about in this latest piece is that the financialization of our basic industries is another big play here. It's not just environmentalism, and it's not just ignorant politicians governing from platitude to platitude. There's also a lot of blame to be laid at the feet of Wall Street and hedge funds and speculators and financiers because there's this strong desire to create pure plays, even for life-critical, society-critical industries like you know, early-stage chemicals, fertilizers, power plants, uh, you name it. And uh, the motto on Wall Street has two sort of two legs to it, which when combined lead to disastrous outcomes. One of which is, you know, that we, we must be efficient. And so we we sacrifice long-term stability and robustness of a system for quarterly efficiency. And so, you know, your inventories must be minimal. Your, you know, working capital needs to be managed, you know, down to the dollar, which is all fine until it isn't. Uh, but the second, and I think even worse part of that is this desire for speculators to have pure place to invest in. And so, whereas in the past we had integrated chemical companies with the ability to dampen input cost volatility because they were forward integrated five to 10 steps down the value chain, that's no longer the case by and large. And what we have are pure plays where speculators don't even like these companies to hedge because they'll hedge their own exposures. We just want right. a pure play to bet on. And so that's how you end up with an unhedged pure play fertilizer plant in the UK shutting down because the wind stopped blowing, natural gas prices spiked, 
Vladimir Putin has decided that um, he'll keep his natural gas at home. And uh, suddenly, because of the lack of purified carbon dioxide for the coal chain, the, the grocery store uh, infrastructure is at serious risk. And people, you know, once they viscerally connect those dots, all of a sudden it makes sense. But that's all very utterly predictable well in advance. No, I, I totally agree that was predictable. But they, now we've reached the point where to connect the two dots that we've been talking about here, we're at the point where the solutions, this is, look, guys, yes, these are the problems. The solution is nuclear, is turning back nuclear power. But these are the kinds of conversations that unfortunately, when you're talking with a general population, there's no, oh yeah, you know what? That's a fair point. It's no, no, we can't do nuclear. Come up with something else, right? it's, it's It's not just that we can't do nuclear. We can't replace coal with natural gas. Right. Even though natural gas burns cleaner, is a byproduct of traditional oil development. Last I checked, we're still going to need gasoline for a very long time. Uh, the rate of turnover in the vehicle propulsion systems is such that we're going to need plenty of oil for a long time. Natural gas emits far less carbon per kilowatt hour produced. It has far fewer associated pollutants. You know, obviously coal has mercury and all kinds of other problems that need to be dealt with and aren't dealt with in some of the emerging geographies in any way, shape or form. But because natural gas is a, quote, fossil fuel, regardless of how much better or more robust it makes our grid, people oppose the development of you know, natural gas-fired power plants. And so it's not just that we can't do nuclear. We can't do anything sane. And so then you're left with the worst of all cases scenario. And so, by the way, like as we described in the latest piece, the operation of a electricity grid is incredibly complex. Uh, you have to perfectly match anticipated demand with supply. Base load power plays a critical role in that. Then you have sort of intermediate power, and then you have what are called peaking plants, which are very expensive. These are natural gas power plants that come on when demand exceeds the base load and intermediate type power sources. And what happened in the UK is um, the intermediate type power sources like uh, wind underdelivered because the wind stopped blowing, which happens from time to time. Like the wind doesn't always blow. And it's widely known that adding intermittent power sources to the grid radically destabilizes the grid. And, and if you're going to do that, you need a much bigger baseload and you need to build expensive peaking power plants. The utilities don't like to do that because they're rarely on and they get a very poor return on capital. Mm-hmm. And then you mix in this efficiency drive from Wall Street and this pure play desire on their part to simplify you know, each company's and that that's how you end up with, with this result. It's, it's really quite remarkable to watch. And for somebody that you know, I have a lot of experience in basic industry and have, have worked on projects that feed the grid a lot. You know, classic story is what happened to the wind market in China. You know, the China had a regulation, as the story goes, that windmill power plants below 50 megawatts uh, were not regulated at the, at the sort of national level. And so each provincial chieftain could make their own uh, windmill factory at, at 49.9. And so you had all of these plants being built and there was nobody coordinating the plugging in of all these plants to the national grid. And when people figured out what a problem this was going to be, they, you know, they put a, an immediate hold on all new wind power construction. And then the market went from booming to zero overnight. And this was utterly predictable, but this is a classic example of, of how you know, managing an electricity grid is, is incredibly complex and, and people don't give enough thought to it as we, as we decide on national energy policy. This nuclear fuel debate brings us to another piece that you wrote about, which is uranium. 
and what's going on in the uranium market because there there are some fascinating dynamics at play in the uranium market right now which I've been following for some time but you you laid them out in a in a really I thought superbly clear way so I, and I know the idea necessarily wasn't originally yours and knowing you I know you'll give credit where it's due but but talk about that talk about the uranium dynamics talk about the market and and what's going on there because I think it's it's truly one of the most fascinating things going on right now to me as you say, the the idea. Well, nobody really has an original idea. Um, no, that's true. Everybody's idea is just a synthesis of other people's work, presented in a unique way. But the idea where I first discovered it uh, came from Copy uh, Harris Copperman, who is who is I think you you follow his work, and he's the author of a great free blog called Inventors in Capitalism, and also has a paid service called Copy's Event Driven Monitor, where um, he tries to find unique sources of alpha in various corners of the market and. I always read Cuppy's pieces uh, as soon as they come in because he makes me think and um, I, I enjoy his writing style. And he had written a piece about how the creation of a new investment trust by Sprott, not really a creation, they, they took over and, and rebranded it. We'll get into those details. But the idea was actually quite amazing, which is there is a structural deficit in uranium because of Fukushima. The uranium market basically collapsed. Um, uranium mines have shut down. And so the, you know, with rough numbers, the uranium market consumes, you know, utilities consume 180 million pounds a year of uranium and mines are only producing 125 million pounds a year. And the difference is being made up by the use of presumably excess inventory. Well, excess inventory is not infinite. And in a sort of clever, if not slightly dubious strategy, uh, the people at Sprott who have a long track record of of working in the precious metal space, uh, have took over an entity that already had sort of $600 million worth of uranium stacked. And they uh, renamed it the Sprott Uranium Physical Investment Trust. Uh, and they started buying spot uranium from the market. And it's a closed-end fund. And so that's a one-way street. So every pound of uranium that Sprott buys sort of semi-permanently removes it from the market. And Spot uh, is buying because they have, uh, with this renamed entity in the new trust, are doing an at-the-market offering to raise money to then turn around and go out into the uranium market and buy uranium. And the clear intent, I think, is to create a vehicle that allows speculators to determine the real price of uranium. Mm -hmm. And the real price of uranium can't be where it was, which was sort of, you know, down around $30 uh, a ton. And, and in the six weeks that they started, you know, Sprott bought about 10 million pounds of uranium and upsized their ATM from 300 million to 1.3 billion, signaling a clear intent to keep going. And then eventually, you know, the, the, as, as a, a good friend on Twitter says, you know, uh, the market goes hashtag REF. Uh, there, there is no product to buy. Now, the market has pulled back in the past week or so. There's nothing that goes up in a straight line. But I think if you look at the cost curve in the uranium industry, in order to induce supply that will be needed, even before Sprott came on the scene, the price of uranium needed to be above $70 a ton. And um, you know, mines have been shut down because there's just no value to it. And so what Sprott is doing I think is interesting, but also in a way laudable, like if we're going to have a carbon-free future, the price of uranium needs to go up. The price of uranium needs to go up so that miners are induced to mine it so that nuclear power operators can feel secure that they're going to have access to supply to produce electricity long into the future. Mm 
And at $30 a ton of uranium, there was no scenario where you know, nuclear power was going to become viable for the long term. And so in a way, it's sort of a confluence of everything we've talked about, which is a crazy energy policy that until recently, nuclear was considered out of bounds, combined with this really unique market situation. And then, of course, this fascinating move by Sprott. And I know you know some people at Sprott to go ahead and create a vehicle to uh, call everybody's bluff in the industry and say, okay, uh, we're here to buy all the uranium that's out there. Uh, let's see if anybody else is too. Yeah, I mean, it, we, this is this is a bizarre situation because what we have is it was what looks like a speculative corner in some ways, but as you say, what it's really doing is actually enabling price discovery because uranium has been underpriced for a considerable period of time. Not just underpriced; it, it wasn't really a market, and so one of the things you need for substantial growth of nuclear power is a far more mature market for uranium than existed. You know, what, what does the spot market of uranium even mean? It, it, when you compare the uranium market to say the gold market or the silver market, you know, the bid ask spreads are wide, volume rarely transacted. If you pull up front month uranium on Bloomberg, uh, there's months where there's no price. Uh, it just it didn't transact. Uh, and so in a way, if nuclear energy is going to be a key element of the tableau of options available to those who decide our energy future. Uh, Sprott is doing the world a fantastic favor by creating liquidity, price discovery, and allowing investors to transmit that message to utilities and uh, mining companies that they should start putting some shovels into the ground. Because if, if you think about it, you know what we would consider a mania, so if we just look at sort of the mania in electric vehicles, this is the market telling entrepreneurs that there's money to be had if you can go and solve this problem. Now, there's always going to be frauds and manias and overpriced things, but you can't deny that the market is telling the world and the auto companies that more electric vehicles are going to be in demand. That's a true market signal. Yeah. Um, in the same way, Sprott is helping to create a true market signal. You know, if very large ESG-oriented funds decided they wanted to shift the world towards more nuclear. They now have a vehicle to do it, whereas in the past they didn't. Now they might not want that. Maybe you know our politicians who you know uh, govern by platitude will convince these ESG funds that nuclear is unqualified for ESG. I hope they don't. I don't think they will. I think the the crises in the UK could lead to a positive development that changes people's perception of nuclear power. And if they do there's going to be a vehicle that exists to drive that message through to the market. And if uranium suddenly is selling at $150 a ton or $200 a ton or $500 a ton, then that's going to trigger action that's going to help the environment. And just by the way, there's no reason why uranium couldn't trade at $500 a ton if Bitcoin can trade at $50,000, whatever it is, you know, uh, $50,000 a coin. Uh, we've seen stupidly crazy prices. We've seen JPEGs on the blockchain trade for millions of dollars. You know, I, I ask you what's more more relevant to the future of humanity, you know, JPEGs on the blockchain or uh, uranium that allows us to create a carbon-free environment with uh, a high base load power that's reliable. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we're, we're in agreement there. But the, the interesting thing about the uranium market, obviously, is just the real inelasticity of supply and the countries where most of this stuff is mined, you know, places like Kazakhstan, which is by far the biggest source of mined uranium. These are not countries where things tend to happen quickly 
in response to you know demand crushes like we're seeing at the moment. I agree, but let's not forget that the reason why Kazakhstan, in part, is a leading producer of uranium. It's not just that they have deposits; it's that they are, you know, basically a dictatorship-type society where red tape and and um, yeah and bureaucracy are no issue. And so there are fine uranium deposits in the Western world that could be developed. Obviously, Canada has a lot, mm-hmm. uh, but it's much, much, much more difficult to get a, a project greenlit in Canada than it is in Kazakhstan. Uh, and so that's a, actually another unanticipated by most consequence of our policy, which we laid bare in America's energy's policy is bonkers, which is, you know, you have this farce of Joe Biden impeding all new fossil fuel development at home and then simultaneously begging OPEC to increase supply because right, he's worried right. about the price of gasoline at the pipe. And I'm like, play that forward, guys. Uh, well, what does that look like in five years? I mean, we are basically, because of our own lack of a strategy, by definition, we are exporting the power to control our economy to places like Kazakhstan and to places like you know the OPEC nations, to Saudi Arabia and Russia. It's amazing. And it, by the way, like it's clear as day. You can see it. Like that, Joe Biden effectively admitted it. Uh, we want low gas prices, and we don't want production at home, which means we are at the behest of and are submitting ourselves to countries that don't like us, uh, countries that uh, might want to do us harm. Now, if you play that forward to the extreme, uh, and there's no supply here and only supply there, then they could turn off our economy with the flick of a switch, and they might. They did it in the '70s. It's not like there isn't a a very strong, you know, um, example of this uh, for us to look at and see what happened. I mean, the gas lines of the '70s probably cost Carter the presidency. You know, eventually, um, the hyperinflation or inflation that occurred in the '70s can be derived back to the sort of energy crisis. I mean, uh, these are all real examples, you know, uh, for us to look at, and and it's baffling to me that we learn nothing from history and are hell-bent on driving 100 miles an hour into the same wall. What is the blind spot here? Because, look, you're a chicken and you figured this out. So what is it about questions like these that to any person that spends any time really thinking this through, it doesn't take long to realise exactly what you've just laid out there. So what is it about this that makes it so difficult for politicians, whether they be in the US or the UK or um, other countries that are going to face similar problems, what is it that stops them just saying, okay, listen, here's the way it is, and this is what we're going to have to do? Our political system is broken. Uh, this is actually, when you think about it long enough, the root cause of all of this, which is we, we no longer have a functioning political system. Uh, we're days away from defaulting on US debt, and nobody seems to think it matters because it probably doesn't. But just look at our reaction to COVID. We are literally incapable of unifying politically around any issue absent a major crisis. And even with a major crisis, people too rapidly skip to the blame game and us versus them, my team, your team. The political system in the US is totally broken. I know that because I live here. I suspect it's probably similar in other countries. Um, not you probably have a lot more knowledge of how the UK system is working. But same, it, same, it, it, same, it's a, same system, different names. Yeah, it's, it's a failure of politics. And uh, you wrote a great piece uh, recently in Things That Make You Go Whom on this topic about, you know, sort of what is the lifespan of a democracy? What, and, and 
are we truly reaching the edge? You know, some would say we're past our expiration date in the U.S. And one of the things we write about a lot, which has always fascinated me, is this sort of cognitive dissonance that goes on during slow-moving crises. Um, you know, when, if you're a German citizen in Weimar at the early stages of hyperinflation, what are you actually doing? What are you believing? What are you thinking? And when you read back to the fall of Rome and fiddling while Rome burns, like the, what were the citizens thinking at that time? Because their cognitive dissonance and their whole sort of basis set from which they derive their thinking come from a foundation of belief that ultimately turns out to be wrong. And that's very hard for societies to conceive. And so when I look at the U.S. right now, for example, all I see are the early signs of hyperinflation. I see you know, a shortage of supply. We're putting out a piece this week called What Does Price Mean When There's No Supply? And it's a piece about Rolex watches, but in reality, it's a piece about black markets and what happens when supply goes away. What does the listed price mean when you can't buy at that price? You know, the government might tell you a loaf of bread is is $10, but on the black market, it's trading for 85. Yeah. Um, we're seeing the exact same phenomenon play out in lots of markets and, and Rolex watches is just one but it's a very special situation and, and fascinating to watch. And so, you know, what were people thinking as Rome was falling? What were people thinking during Weimar? What are we thinking now? Uh, and, you know, there's plenty of brilliant people on Twitter who I respect and read and cause me to think um, that look at lots of data and make fancy charts and say, inflation is not a problem. But in my real life, everywhere I look, I either can't buy what I want or if it's available, it's, twice the price that it was last year, or, you know, pick your favorite, you know, shrinkflation story, uh, service levels have cratered, uh, but prices haven't dropped concurrently, which is another form of inflation. I often wonder what did people think? What did people think of Germany during the rise of Hitler? How did they, how did that political collapse, you know, uh, why did some people leave and some people stay, you know, your, your Simon, uh, what's his last name? Mikalovic. Yeah. His interview with you. And then recently with Dimitri is really fascinating. Like, how he decided to leave and how he got out versus the people who stayed. Um, uh, but that's, of course, is talking about Russia, not Germany. But those are fascinating questions to me. And as sort of skeptical person, as a, as a doomer, one might say, I have to be mindful that pattern recognition is both a skill and a curse. Uh, there's not, mm -hmm. always a boogie, not always a boogeyman around the corner, but we are seeing patterns that echo back to these times. Our political system is undeniably broken. Uh, and I think that's how you end up with a situation where Kazakhstan decides how many nuclear power plants we can build. But to, to your point, the conclusions aren't the most important thing. The, the most important thing is the exercise of entertaining these previously unexpected outcomes. You know, and, and it takes it takes a lot seemingly for people to entertain these things and think about you know why am I hyperinflation in the U.S. Because the simple answer is oh it'll never happen here, and it might never happen here, but that shouldn't stop you actually thinking it through and thinking about how could it happen here? Well, it was inconceivable that used car prices would sell for more than new right. cars. Uh, right. and, until it, it was inconceivable that interest rates would be negative. Uh, it was inconceivable that the Fed would double its balance sheet in the span of 18 months. It was, lots of things were inconceivable. Uh, it's inconceivable that a Big Mac might cost $20. What happens when it does? And one of the things that I think is different about the situation that I worry about, and I haven't decided if it's something to worry about or maybe something that will buffer us from the consequences, but we have to layer on top of all of this, the power of social media. Right. And very early on, we, we wrote about, you know, inflation is 
I believe, a psychological reaction to a monetary phenomenon. And that psychological reaction can be easily manipulated on social media by people that don't like us. And so if you just look at TikTok, for example, if you do the hypothetical of a Big Mac being listed for $20 in Alabama and China deciding that this is going to go viral on TikTok, you know, inflation is as much about psychology as it is monetary policy. Our psychology can be manipulated. It has been shown that bad actors will knowingly manipulate our psychology. Um, you mix in propaganda and people losing faith in, in modern media. Well, it doesn't take much to spin a few knobs to torque up people's fears about inflation. And when we, we release the piece on Rolex, and by the time you publish this, I suspect it will be out, you go to a Rolex store today, you can't find any Rolexes. Every single store is basically empty. There's a black market for Rolexes. The list price at Rolex.com is irrelevant. It's as foolish as Venezuela telling you what the price of bread is. Uh, the prices for those watches are three and four times those list prices in the black market today. Um, and so that just shows that panic can happen and even sort of elite snob, snob, snobby crowds like, you know, people who like expensive watches. So I, I don't know. Okay? It, it, this overlaying of the power of social media using dopamine doses to affect our behavior layered on top of sort of standard, all of the fuel necessary for a hyperinflationary environment being there, what stops an enemy of ours from striking a match? I don't know. Well, it's interesting. In the most recent super terrific happy hour with Steph Pombo, we spoke to Sam Zell. And Sam's point going back to the 70s, he said, you know, inflation is above everything else, a mindset. And once you get into that mindset, it's very, very hard to shift it. And so, you know, the point you make about social media is absolutely on the button. I was talking to my daughter yesterday in the UK, talking about all the crazy um, uh, lines at gas stations to fill up cars and people filling up seven or eight jerry cans with fuel. Now, the original article from BP, the original announcement that came out, was that they were having to restrict you know, several gas stations from supplies. And this story was amped up by the media and went viral and was reported uh, comically the, the the reporter that the BBC sent to cover the story was a guy whose name was Phil McCann you can't I mean you can't <laughs> you can't you can't make this stuff up but you know my daughter saying look you know the, the original story was like you know half a dozen gas stations in a certain part of the country where they couldn't get drivers to get the fuel out to them and within 48 hours there were two hour queues at gas stations which to me talks not just to the power of social media but the fragility of modern society. Yeah, we, we wrote a piece about the collapse of the US military presence in Afghanistan and uh, what that really means for the perceived stability of powerful structures and how quickly that can collapse. You know, I had a discussion just yesterday with our mutual friend, uh, Dimitri Kofinas, about prepping. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a prepper. Uh, that, might, that might not come as a surprise to you based on the, <laughs> the, the, the Doomberg name, but I've, I've long you know, believed that the just-in-time inventory structure of the modern procurement chains is not something I was willing to sacrifice in my home. And so I keep a, a pretty strong buffer, but most people don't. And in reality, what we see going on in the UK is nothing more than a short squeeze. People are effectively short their future needs. Yeah. Unlike millennia that predates us today, people have totally delegated their future needs to the just-in-time delivery logistical network of modern society, which is fine. And on balance, it's probably the right decision until it isn't. So 
you're effectively very short the future need for food, for petrol, for electricity, for water, for your prescriptions. And most people are like the, the modern retailers. They have but a few days worth of inventory in their homes. And so if prices go up or people think prices will go up, uh, you have what happened in the UK transpire, which is essentially a short squeeze. People will cover their future needs at any price because as the piece we're putting out this week, what does price mean when there is no supply? Um, so you, you are very familiar with short squeezes. If you, in a way, it's sort of the margin call of life uh, hits you uh, and you are looking at your children who don't have any food to eat, uh, you will both pay any price and unfortunately uh, engage in any behavior to, to, to cover. Uh, and that's what we see in panic runs. You know, I'm, I'm always baffled by a panic run at Home Depot in Hurricane Alley. <laughs> Like you live where hurricanes strike. You ought to have thought of this before and increased the sort of working capital of your home. Now, people will counter say not everybody can afford it, et cetera. It doesn't take much. You know, it's a conscious decision to, you know, a bag of rice isn't that expensive. Uh, some water filters aren't that expensive. Um, it doesn't take much to shave off 90% of your risk. I, I agree, you don't have to be an extreme prepper where you have you know, two years worth of everything in your home. But to survive a weekend or a week or two weeks without power is a pretty reasonable proposition that I see is both a hedge against inflation because the stuff that we need is going up in price and also brings with it the optionality of an insurance policy that you know, insurance is a money loser for most consumers and yet we all happily pay for our home insurance annually with the hope that we never have to file a claim. Um, so in one area of our life, because it's mandated because of mortgages, but um, you'll find that when people pay off their mortgage, they don't turn off their insurance policy. <laughs> they keep paying for home insurance because it's a big part of their finances. And if it burnt down, you want to have your home insurance. Right. Um, there's no difference between home insurance and life insurance. And I define life insurance not as a policy you know, that you buy in case you die. It's a policy of things you buy now so that you can keep living in the face of you know various crises, um, and so you know I, I, it's just to me these the, the people have slipped into the the efficiency. Back to talking about sort of the financiers and pure plays and speculators, um, the trade of efficiency for durability is not one that I personally like to take uh, in my life. Um, you know my my home, uh, I sort of run my home the way I would run a business, and the product of that business is the, the health and well being and comfort of me and my family. And uh, I have decided that that business needs a, a higher level of working capital. So switching gears a little bit, what's been the most surprising reaction to anything you've written over the last few months? I would say the piece on Michael Saylor. <laughs> and again, I think it just goes back to title, uh, A Drunken Sailor. Now, what Michael Saylor is doing is very plain, plainly obvious to anybody uh, observing it. Uh, that Well, you, well you, you, know, you say that. I, I, want you to, I want you to outline this because there are an awful lot of people who absolutely don't see this. And I thought your piece actually was really well written in laying it out in a way that even the people who will actively resist seeing it would struggle to argue with. So Michael Saylor is converting his company into a Bitcoin holding company. And there's an arbitrage at play. And even though 
Michael Saylor's fiduciary is to his shareholders, he is going to close that arbitrage. And the arbitrage is this. Um, if you value his company, MicroStrategy, as a Bitcoin holding company, it's wildly overvalued. The value of that company compared to the amount of Bitcoin it owns, assuming one can truly own a Bitcoin, is far higher than what liquidation value of that Bitcoin is. And so what Michael Saylor is doing is arbitraging his own company stock. He is selling company stock to buy Bitcoin to close that gap. And so he is short selling his own stock effectively and using the proceeds to buy Bitcoin until that gap closes. And it's a fascinating experiment. I, I, it's quasi legal. I would characterize it. It's unclear to me how that's like totally legal um, because he is an undeclared instrument to speculate in the price of Bitcoin. Uh, and so he is, you know, after having tapped out all of the debt market, um, he is, you know, issuing stock to to buy more Bitcoin. Now, the fascinating thing, of course, is that he's leveraged to do it. When I just said what I just said is important, which is he has borrowed money with the express purpose of buying Bitcoin. So he's not just creating an instrument to speculate on the price of Bitcoin. He's creating an instrument to speculate on the price of Bitcoin with leverage. Uh, that money needs to be paid back. Now, maybe he can refinance it. There is some interest payment associated with it, and there is a small you know, uh, underlying software business uh, under Sailor's sort of empire, but let's not mistake it. I mean, this is a Bitcoin speculation vehicle now. Uh, it's not registered as such at the SEC. It's a backdoor Bitcoin ETF effectively. And uh, it's a fascinating experiment. I'm surprised that the SEC hasn't intervened. Maybe they will, but you layer on top of that sort of the, the, the call option play and the gamma squeeze. And, you know, I, I would never advise anybody to short MicroStrategy or to short what MicroSailor is doing, because I think that's just a, a, a loser's game. But it's really a fascinating thing. Like he, he is openly, effectively shorting his own stock to buy Bitcoin. And it's, it's really amazing to watch in real time. So what, what was surprising about the reaction to that? Because you, the one consistent part I found when going anywhere near the crypto space is the reaction, right? It's the one yeah. thing you can pretty much count on is the reaction from, from both sides, from the lovers and the haters alike. No matter what you write, they generally tend to react the same way. So how, how was the reaction to this surprising? Just that it went so viral. Okay. Uh, you know, you're, you're a writer, like you, sometimes you write a piece and you think, yeah, it's pretty good. And then it takes off. And then sometimes you write a piece that you think is great and nobody reads it. Um, and in this case, it was early in Doomberg and it just sort of went super viral for us, you know, thousands, tens and tens of thousands of views, um, you know, many new email subscribers. And so in a way, it's great. Um, happy to have it. But at the same time, it, it did surprise me. And I do think it actually just comes back to the title, um, you know, a drunken sailor, you know, spelt with the way his last name is spelt was, yeah. a, was a clever title. Um, and I just sort of laying bare the simple, you know, and others had done this. I mean, this is nothing. I mean, I, I, I read and almost grants daily the same day I published that was a, was effectively the same piece um, is very, very clear. If you just did a little bit of analysis, you could pull up the cap table on Bloomberg and see that, you know, um, what the effective price of Bitcoin was. So the, the way we presented it was just this, if, if, if micro strategy stock at this price implies a Bitcoin price of X and X is way higher than the Bitcoin price. So the classic trap of a trade would be, oh, I'm going to short micro strategy and go long Bitcoin. But you, you could lose that game because this is a stock and it can be squeezed for a variety of reasons. And Lord knows that stocks aren't trading based on fundamental value these days. 
Well, talking of squeezes and, and fundamental values, obviously one more thing I definitely want to get your thoughts on is the the apes, the AMCs, the GameStops, that yeah. whole dynamic. Walk me through your, your thoughts around that. Yeah, we've developed a series that we call the Super Stonk series. And uh, I've, I've stolen Stonk from Dimitri. You know, Dimitri has crafted this great framework called you know market nihilism or yeah. financial nihilism where people are proactively investing in stuff they know is worthless almost as a form of protest but also because they anticipate that other people will be willing to buy from them at a higher price and um you know we we <laughs> somewhat sarcastically you know because it's not a shock but I'm, I'm probably more of a value-based investor and haven't done as well speculating in this market because I can't just bring I can't bring myself to buy something that I know is worthless even if I think somebody else might right. buy it from me later for a higher price. Um, so we call fundamental analysis the stupid way of looking at a company, uh, and, and the stupid way of looking at a company is practiced by what we call money haters, uh, which is our new phrase for value investors. And so money haters use the stupid way to look at stocks and lose money. And so we've done a whole series of super stocks where you just take the classical look at the current and future prospects of a company and then compare it to what the market is telling you it's quote unquote worth. Uh, and it really is just baffling. And they keep saying, you know, one of the old expressions is it's different this time. And maybe it is. I don't think it is, you know, listening to your discussion with John Hussman on the, on the first Grant Williams Gold video like all of these things inevitably end in the same way, but it doesn't mean they can't double or triple from here. And so it's literally not investable analysis because as crazy as AMC's stock price is relative to their business prospects, it could get twice or three times as crazy. Um, and so we've, we've decided to create a series where we just do the stupid way of analysis and just show how silly everything is. Um, and one of my favorites was Beyond Meat, which is, you know, I think, Josh Wolf put a tweet out where or somebody did where, you know, um, the value of Beyond Meat is greater than the entire value of the food ingredients that feed it. Uh, not like I mean, for everybody, right? And so basically, it's just you know this vegetarian meat. And I and I did some original research and went out to various grocery stores, and you can't even find it. Like it, yeah, it, the, the 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 contradiction between reality and what Wall Street is selling. It's so baffling. Like AMC is another one. This this Adam Aaron, who's the CEO of AMC, and the game he's playing is so obvious and so wrong. And real testimony to the lack of uh, enforcement by our regulatory bodies that he would even think that this is something he could get away with. But you know, we're going to uh, accept Bitcoin and we're going to collaborate with GameStop and uh, all retail investors get a free box of popcorn. And yeah, this is a guy who should have filed for bankruptcy. Should still file for bankruptcy. AMC is not a going concern. Its debt table is totally um, broken. You know, one of the things we did in in Superstonks AMC was just describe the mechanics of a cap table right. and the water the the waterfall process of divvying up you know valuables in the case of a bankruptcy. And we got a lot of emails saying thank you. Like I never really understood that this those basic things which many people take for granted are worth explaining. And that's sort of what we try to do is you know teach without being sort of too high minded about it, but. You know, AMC is an insolvent walking bankruptcy. And there's so many more shares now than there were before COVID. Right. And they're priced at, you know, this remarkable price. And so much so that uh, the shareholders of AMC have limited the CEO from, from issuing new shares, 500 million shares versus 80 million before COVID. It's really remarkable. So 
Well, and that's and, been a very fun series. No, and, and, and week yeah. after week, the box office numbers come in and reinforce yeah. just how yeah. busted this model is. And it was busted before. Yeah. I mean, like before COVID, Netflix was a thing. Yeah, you know, the trend was going against theaters. Look, there will be a market for theaters. It will be bespoke. It'll be small. It'll be sentimental. You can still buy, you know, records today. There's a thriving secondary market for vintage records and record players. Um, theaters are record players, and Netflix is, you know, an MP3 player. Um, Disney Plus is an MP3 player. Um, the COVID has accelerated the permanent impairment of that business, which already had a wrecked balance sheet before all of this um, apes and, and Reddit nonsense. All the Reddit crowd has done is allowed the well-heeled debt holders to reposition themselves, take some money out. Um, you know, it saved them from big losses, but it doesn't change the outcome of AMC. AMC will file for bankruptcy. The equity value of AMC stock is zero. AMC is also unshortable. Right. <laughs> you, you, you just can't play it. Um, there is no amount of margin you could set aside that will protect you from the potential of a short squeeze that make shorting AMC today, even though you know what the long-term value of the company is, a viable investment strategy. So it's free for me to write about it. I, I never give investment advice. I don't have any position in AMC. I don't speculate in most things. If I do have a position in something I write about, I try to disclose it uh, as accurately as I can. But the Super Stonk series is just a fun way to document for posterity just how crazy it was. Um, you know, when we look back at you know the the internet boom of 99, 2000, or pick your favorite speculative bubble, some of the stories are hard to believe and they become caricatures. And I'm trying to, you know, we're trying to capture those caricatures in real time and put it out there that at least the chicken knew what was going on. Well, how sad you must be that you weren't uh, you weren't out of the roost when WeWork was all happening because that would have been another perfect subject for you. Well, look, before we close, what's um, what's next for Doomberg? Where, where where do you take this little project of yours from here? Uh, we'll see. You know, one of the totally transparent one of the reasons why we want to build out Doomberg is to develop a potential business where we don't need any clients to do what we love all day. Uh, we still want our clients, and we're happy to have them. But one thing that we wrote about in the work of our life was just how traumatic the whole COVID experience was for us as a firm. We went from having our best month ever in February of 2020 to losing 80% of our business by May. And uh, that was a real, as we said in the article, it was a high pucker factor. We realized that the seeming stability of our client base was in fact a metastable state that could go away. And so Doomberg is one of many reactions to that event where we are trying to create lines of business that don't rely on any particular client and only rely on us and our skills and our ability to produce. So we will eventually almost certainly go behind the paywall, much like you did. We applaud your decision to go behind the paywall. I think the future of creator content is subscription-driven, not ad-driven. And I think Substack is a, is a great vehicle for that. And so once we get to a sizable enough audience uh, and we earn the right to go behind the paywall, uh, we will probably do that. There'll still be some free stuff. But in reality, we'd like to find out who our most loyal readers are that appreciate our work and are willing to pay for it. Um, because you know, if it's free, it's not really worth anything. Um, and so uh, ultimately, if, if there's... And by the way, the, the market will tell us if, if, if our thought and our analysis and our writing is worth something, 
you know, there's also another bet here, which is people also like to be entertained. So one of the things we don't do is give investment advice. And we've been cautioned by people that the only creators who make money in the finance space are those who give tangible investment ideas. We disagree. Uh, we think people want to be entertained and they want to learn and they want to be part of something that wins and are willing to um, help them out. Like you have a very loyal audience. You don't give specific investment advice. You have you talk about investments and you teach people about themes and how to think about portfolio construction and megatrends and reacting to them. But you don't say buy AMC and uh, put a, a trailing stop at, at 35. And so and you, you've carved out a great life and we'd like to do that. And so Ultimately, if we are in the right, we will probably go behind the paywall and continue to build the audience uh, in the way that we're doing, continually adapting to the analytics and what our audience tell us and always being true to the fact that if it's not an authentic uh, expression of our passion, then it's not worth doing. Well, I've got to say, for, from a personal standpoint, watching the chicken grow and helping when and where I can has been has been a lot of fun for me. And, and I wish you continued success because I think what you're doing is not only undeniably entertaining, but I think it's important too. And you are helping a lot of people understand some of the crazy things that are going on right now, which which if you haven't had that kind of longevity in this world and understand just how off-center the whole financial world has become, it's very difficult to really appreciate the, the depths to which a lot of those things are sunk. So I think, I think you are doing important work and I wish you well. And for those people who haven't um, tuned into The Chicken just yet, let people know how they can find out what you're doing and how to follow you and all that good stuff. Absolutely. And listen, Grant, I, I, before I do that, I just want to thank you. You are one of the key people in our decision to, to launch Thunberg and you've been a great supporter and, and really an honor to be on your podcast. It's been a fantastic experience as always. And your reputation of being the best interviewer in the podcast world is well-deserved. Um, for those who are interested in following Doomberg, uh, you can read our work at doomberg.substack.com, D-O-O-M-B-E-R-G.substack.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at Doomberg T. Um, unfortunately, Doomberg was taken. So we had to put the uh, the T at the end of it, which stands for terminal. But we are at Doomberg T and we're also at doomberg.substack.com. And, and thanks so much, Grant, for having me on and and uh, looking forward to the next uh, the next product that you're putting out, including all of the gold uh, tier interviews and, and of course, your, your newsletters and your podcasts. Well, thank you. And uh, let's do this again soon because one thing's for certain, you and I are not going to run out of things to talk about. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Grant. Cheers. Bye-bye. Well, I have to say, I've been fortunate enough to, as you've heard through that conversation, be something of a passenger along the way in the in the creation and um, the kind of journey that Doomberg has been on so far. And it, it's been a fascinating thing for me to observe. But more importantly, the quality of the work has just been consistently excellent. Every piece I've read has been unique in its own way. It's been interesting. And yet there's a thread that runs through all these pieces, which uh, as you read more and more of them will become very obvious to you. And I think what he's doing in chronicling the madness that we're seeing right now uh, and being able to do that anonymously and with not just a good grasp of the issues, but no small amount of humor is very important. So if you don't follow Doomberg already, I would encourage you to do so. Um, you've got all these details there. And I look forward to watching as, uh, as, the, as the writing continues and the business grows. That's all from me for another episode. I will see you back here again with another great guest shortly. Thanks for listening.
Ich bin Christian Schmidt, Pfarrer der Evangelischen Kirche in Bern und ich leite das Kirchenjahr 